Our scripture lesson for the sermon this evening is in Exodus, chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. We'll be studying the concept this evening of the relationship of the Passover and the Lord's Supper. And so we read here of the institution of Passover and its first observance, the actual Passover event. So this is the word of the living God as he inspired Moses to write. Of course, Moses was an eyewitness to these things. Uh, But uh, more than that, just as we know of the apostles, the Holy Spirit would have superintended uh, what this prophet of the Lord was writing so that we're not just reading here Moses' best recollection of what happened, but God's infallible word telling us what occurred. And so let us read the word of the living God, Exodus 12, verses 1 through 13. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor... Next to his house, take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it, with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us this evening. May he bless its reading and its exposition and its hearing. When I first came to Hebron at the times that we celebrated the Lord's Supper, I had preached about the Old Testament feasts over those times and about once a quarter as we were observing the supper and uh, and it was uh, 
suggested that it would be nice to hear those sermons together, those topics put together. And so uh, over the next several weeks, my intention here for our evening services is to preach again on uh, those topics. And so we start this evening uh, with the uh, topic of the relation of the Passover uh, and the Lord's Supper. Because, of course, it was in the context of the Passover that uh, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And we owe a great debt to Alfred Edersheim, who lived from 1825 to 1889. Uh, He was a Jewish man who came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, He ministered in the Free Church of Scotland, which is a Presbyterian church. And then also in the Church of England thereafter, uh, when he was in the Free Church of Scotland, I understand he did a lot of missionary work with Jews in Romania. Uh, In his book, The Temple, Its Ministry and Service, Edersheim relates the uh, results of his careful study into how Passover was celebrated in Jesus' day. And uh, it's his topical order that I will Uh, be following this evening, especially when we get to talking about what Jesus would have done during the Passover celebration. We note that as we see here in the scripture this evening, the Lord instituted this sacrament of the Passover for the Old Covenant in Uh, the time of Moses, and that thereafter when they were to do this in remembrance of that event and also looking forward to the true Passover, who would be Christ, uh, they were looking back to this event that's recorded here, or that's uh, at least uh, predicted here in Exodus chapter 12, where the Lord had said, that he was going to strike dead the firstborn of the land of Egypt. And it wasn't as if the Israelites could escape this because Egypt was guilty of sin, but Israel was just fine. Israelites were were not guilty. Well, of course, uh, each one of us is, uh, in one sense, as guilty as the next. Now, there are some sins that are considered more egregious than others, but all of us are guilty of sin. And none of us deserves to have God's wrath pass over us. And yet that's exactly what God does for Israel. But he doesn't do it just winking at their sins. There is something they have to do. There's a process that has to happen so that his wrath would pass over. And we've read about it this evening. That on the 10th of the month, this was the the month of Abib, or uh, later on it was the month of Nisan, It would be the month that has the spring equinox in it. And this would have been a time when they were counting a month beginning with a new moon uh, to the next new moon. And uh, at the beginning of that month, 10 days into that month rather, they would uh, take a lamb. It was originally, it could be the sheep or the goats. By Jesus' day, it was more customarily that it would have been a lamb, an actual lamb as we would consider it, uh, of the sheep. They would take a lamb, a year old, a male, and he had to be unblemished. 
And of course, we know that this points forward to the unblemished character of Christ Jesus, who is the ultimate Passover lamb. It has to be unblemished. And then on the 14th of the month, they would sacrifice the lamb. Uh, This sacrifice continued uh, in generations hereafter, but the major difference here in the first case, in the first uh, celebration, they took the blood of the lamb and they painted it, as it were, they sprinkled it on the lintel and on the doorposts of their houses. And so the only way that you could avoid the wrath of God that was coming upon Egypt was to enter into a house through the blood. And this, of course, is a picture then of how we enter into God's kingdom, how his wrath passes over us. We have to enter through the blood of the ultimate sacrifice through Jesus Christ. Only by his atoning death can any of us be counted as worthy of having God's wrath passing over us because in and of ourselves we are not worthy. It's only Christ who is worthy. So at twilight they would kill it. Now in later years what would happen is that uh, in the afternoon, roughly starting around 3 in the afternoon when the evening sacrifice uh, would take place in the temple on the 14th of the month of Abib, uh, two men from each household would go and take their lamb to the temple. It would be sacrificed. And you'll notice also that because, as we'll see later, uh, all, all of the lamb has to be eaten, uh, they, they could mix and match, as it were, households. You want to make sure that the right number, roughly the right number of people, are in each household. So if your neighbor has too many and you have too few, some of his, uh, his household comes into your household and you celebrate this because it's important that the whole thing be eaten. And if, if the whole thing's not eaten and anything that you wouldn't eat, like the entrails and things like that, that would be, have to be burned in the morning. But as far as the days of Jesus, by that time, of course, when they're in the land, uh, what would happen is instead of painting the doorposts with the blood of the lamb, the lamb would be sacrificed in the temple and its blood caught in a vessel, and that vessel would be passed, as it were, sort of a bucket brigade uh, of Levites and priests up to the the altar, and a priest would, would splash that blood on the altar. Uh, You can think of how this would point to the desperate need for atonement and what God's wrath is upon sin and what God's wrath at sin demands. Because this would not have been a pleasant thing to observe. This would have been a very bloody day all afternoon from roughly 3 o'clock onwards they would be killing these lambs one after another after another, many at the same time, in fact, and the lines of the, the bowls of their blood converging at the, uh, at the altars, one bowl of blood after another, after another, after another, showing just what God's wrath at sin demands. Uh, one of the... Uh, one of the uh, important things we know when we consider the Last Supper that Jesus obeyed all of the commands for carrying out this sacrament of Passover. The one was that it be an eaten meal. 
In the original case, they ate it ready to go. They had their belts on, they had their staves in their hand. Uh, those things were not required in Jesus' day. In fact, they would wear festival, festival garments, as I'll talk about a little more here in a bit. But, uh, but certainly, in the original sense, the original uh, case, they were to be ready for a hasty departure. And some of the things that they did then were carried forward. So, of course, eating the unleavened bread, which pointed to the fact that we need to get sin out of our lives. We have sin in our lives. And, and then, in fact, they would clean their entire houses in every celebration after this. The, every house would have to be swept clean so that there was no leaven at all in the house when they were celebrating this. So one of the things, though, that Jesus would have observed is that this is an eaten meal. And there were traditions, of course, which had cropped up and which he would have followed that were simply circumstances of how the meal was eaten in obedience to the commandment of God. Uh, would be akin to the fact that we have to obey Christ's command to keep the Lord's Supper, but whether we use wooden trays or metal trays or whether we gather around one single table or the elders bring the the bread and the cup to you, uh, what particular psalms we uh, might sing during that service, things like that. Those are circumstances of the sacrament that we need to decide but which aren't clearly laid out in Scripture. So there were certain circumstances and customs that Jesus followed that weren't laid out in Scripture, but they're not elements of worship, but they were commanded, that would be commanded by God, but circumstances that the worshipers were free to adjust so that the elements could be best observed. So if we see that in Jesus' time, things don't look identical to what we read earlier on, it's not that Jesus felt felt free or was telling us to feel free to monkey with the sacrament itself, but uh, just that there were certain things that were circumstances that were uh, not uh, elemental. But here's the issue of how Passover relates to the Lord's Supper. Uh, First, we might note that, as Edersheim points out, uh, it would be awfully nice and convenient if modern Passover Seder, and Seder just means order or arrangement. So if you hear uh, Jewish people talk about the Passover Seder, that word just means the, the, the arrangement, the order of how things are done. Uh, if It would be really nice and convenient if you could go and observe uh, Jews uh, observing this sacrament, uh, if, if those were unchanged from ancient times, and you could see how it's done today, and therefore know that's how Jesus did it. Well, uh, that's not the case, though. Uh, for many traditions of the modern Passover celebration are clearly from the time after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which would have happened roughly 40 years after the time that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Uh, nevertheless, there are many similarities, and the historical continuity can be seen. And we have uh, excellent resources that tell us what the typical Passover observance looked like in Jesus' day. Many of the practices from Christ's time have been preserved, and certainly there are resources that tell us what it was like. Moreover, we find that the biblical accounts of the Last Supper and the rabbinical writings about Passover from Jesus' time fit hand in glove. So we see that these things do work together, and that it makes it a great deal of sense of what Jesus was doing if we read some of these other sources. Uh, Jewish rabbis 
uh, both ancient and recent, rite of sop dipped in a dish. Think of that. That was uh, part of the, the tradition. And what did Jesus use it for? When John leaned over to him and asked, which one of us is going to betray you? After all of them had said, is it I, Lord? He said, it's the one who eats the sop. And he dipped the sop and gave it to Judas. So that was something that we see written of in rabbinical sources. Sop dipped in a dish. Breaking of bread. Giving thanks. Cups being distributed. All of those things are uh, typical for the Passover observance of Jesus' day. Even the lamb as it was eaten, was spoken of often in uh, typical liturgies of the day as his body or his body of the Passover or his body of the covenant. So it wasn't totally foreign for the Passover lamb himself to call the bread my body. So to take an element of that meal and call it my body. The difference is the person that the pronoun refers to. His body, third person, my body, first person. Jesus is saying, this sacrament is actually about me. Of course, if that were any one of us that did that, it would be extremely arrogant, but Jesus, being God in the flesh, is pointing out, I instituted this sacrament of Passover centuries ago to point toward what I am about to do. And so he institutes a new sacrament for us to look back at what he has accomplished. In Jesus' day, two men from each company celebrating the Passover would take the lamb to the temple to be sacrificed, as I already mentioned, and there would be this uh, very bloody event, and then they would take the lamb back to the place where the company they were going to eat with met, was going to meet, had arranged to meet. Uh, in Jesus' case, it was the upper room where they had arranged that uh, they would have this meal, and they would prepare it. So this would have been Peter and John. In Jesus' case, the scriptures tell us they went and they uh, prepared the lamb after its sacrifice. They took it back to the place where it would be eaten and roasted it as we saw here in Exodus 12, verses 8 through 10. Roasted whole with head and legs and innards. Uh, And alone of all of the sacrifices, it was customary for any sacrifice burnt on the altar, uh, that it would be washed first. This one was not to be washed. It was not to be sodden with water. It was certainly not to be boiled. It was not to be prepared in any way other than roasting it. Uh, one reason for that in the initial Passover, of course, was the reason for the need for haste. You don't have time to boil enough water to boil a lamb If you're in a hurry, roasting is a much quicker way of preparing the meat. Exodus 12.46 actually stipulates that its bones are not to be broken. And we've noted many times before that this this points to Christ Jesus, who of all of the types of wounds that he did not receive, or that he did receive rather, the one he didn't receive was the brokenness of bones. He didn't have any bones broken. And this points to the fact then that he is the ultimate Passover lamb. These things, all these things about the preparation of the lamb and that it had to be eaten in totality and if not anything left over would be 
burned, but it was so important that you uh, try really hard to eat the whole thing in totality, uh, that you would make sure that you had the right number of people to eat a lamb in one house so that, so that you didn't have too many in one house and not enough in another. These things symbolize the totality of the sacrifice that it was pointing forward to. The wholeness and the unbrokenness points to the unbroken fellowship with God, many ancient rabbis even pointed out, and that his people are one family and one body. And notice the careful preparation that points to Christ's preparation of himself to be the final Passover to be offered and to offer himself in our place. Edersheim notes that the Passover lamb is not only different from other Levitical sacrifices in its preparation, but also in that it was instituted before the existence of the Levitical priesthood. God had not named the tribe of Levi nor the sons of Aaron to be his priests when this sacrifice took place. And so as would have been ordinary from a time immemorial, uh, they would have, uh, the, or I should say this, the heads of the household would have been considered priests to the household, or the firstborn sons would have been considered the ones dedicated to the service of God in the household, the one who would be the heir to the leadership of the household. And in fact, when God does take the Levites later on, he takes them in lieu of the firstborn of Israel. Interesting that that would be the case when God was killing the firstborn of Egypt. And the only way that the firstborn of Israel could get out from under that wrath of God was for this sacrifice to take place. Also, it's probably noteworthy that Jesus himself was a firstborn son. But The simple fact is here that this was instituted before the Levitical priesthood was instituted. And so the sacrifice of Christ as the true Passover lamb did not need to be conducted by a son of Aaron, but by a priest whose priesthood preceded Aaron's priesthood. Jesus, who according to Psalm 110, is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, to whom even Abraham tithed. With the lamb having been roasted, the guests would gather at the table, Unlike at the original Passover, uh, rather than being dressed for a hasty departure and having come in the home through the blood, though they would have seen the need for the bloody sacrifice in the temple uh, all afternoon long, but rather than being hasty, dressed for a hasty departure with the belts and, the, and with the staff in hand, the guests in Jesus' time would be dressed in festive garments traditionally. And the typical posture of eating the meal was to be reclining, that is, leaning on the elbow, actually, at the table. And this is a clear statement. Because as slaves typically ate standing, the Israelites were saying, we have been freed from slavery. Enough wine for four cups that could be shared by the celebrants would be brought along with the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs. Unleavened bread pointing to, again, the hastiness of the original departure and also the need for sin to be removed from us. The bitter herbs, again, remembering the bitterness of bondage as well as, again, the hasty departure because you don't have time to wait for things to ripen. 
Gamaliel, who was the teacher of the Apostle Paul, said that the meaning of the Passover lamb, that the uh, wrath of God passed over the blood-sprinkled houses, the meaning of the unleavened bread, that deliverance from Egypt came in haste, the bitter herbs, remembering the bitterness of bondage, must be explained, or the duty of the celebrants has not been fulfilled. And so they would have customarily done this. But rather than recording Jesus talking about the original Passover, we don't know whether that would have happened or not, but we see that Jesus speaks of what this Passover points to himself. The supper began, as the Passover supper, began when the leader of the company would give thanks over the first cup of wine. The first cup was then shared, followed by a ritual hand-washing. It was likely at this time, at least Edder's time thinks so, that, that Jesus would have washed his disciples' feet. The bitter herbs would then be dipped in salt water by the leader, and they would be eaten by the company. Then the second cup of wine would be filled, and it might be shared then or drunk during the actual eating of the meal. It was customary at this point to sing Psalms 113 and 114. Then the lamb would be brought with the bitter herbs and unleavened bread, that is with more bitter herbs and unleavened bread. Ordinarily, uh, they would eat the meal and then give thanks after the breaking of bread. But Christ, as he instituted the Lord's Supper, gave thanks first. However, that was likely after the lamb, or that might have been after the lamb and other bread had been eaten, but he gave thanks and then broke bread, saying, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. The lamb would be eaten at this point in the meal. Interestingly, there was a custom that the lamb had to be the last thing eaten until the cessation of Passover sacrifices. Uh, so that they weren't to eat anything afterwards. It may well be that Jesus waited until after that to give the customary thanks, then to break bread. And that was a statement saying, the Passover is fulfilled. I am about to fulfill all of its imagery. Any other Passover celebration hereafter is not necessary. Jews today customarily eat a piece of bread after the lamb to point to the fact that there is no temple currently where a Passover sacrifice could take place. Likewise, Jesus seems to have broken bread and eaten it with his disciples after the lamb was eaten. Again, say as if it were to say, I'm instituting this new sacrament. The fulfillment of the Passover has come. The Passover sacrifices have ceased. There is no need for any more because Christ, as Paul tells us, is our Passover. Next came the third cup. So uh, this would have been the cup that would have been uh, drunk after Jesus broke the bread and shared it with his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And this was known customarily as the cup of blessing. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, Paul actually refers to the cup that we share in the Lord's Supper as the cup of blessing. This is the cup which Jesus used to signify his shed blood. 
Psalms 115 through 118 would then be sung over the fourth cup or after the supper would be ended. And though, uh, thus we see that uh, Christ and his disciples went out to the Mount of Olives after they had sung a hymn. So that might refer, as Matthew 26.30 tells us, that might refer to all of those psalms, 115 through 118, or maybe they sang, uh, 100, maybe they sang 115, 16, and 17, and then uh, after the meal was finished, uh, culminated with singing 118 and went out to the Mount of Olives. Edersheim's words on what followed are poignant. He says, Then it was that the Lord's great heaviness and loneliness came upon him. When all around seemed to give way as if crushed under the terrible burden about to be lifted, when his disciples could not watch with him even one hour, when in the agony of his soul his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground, and when he prayed saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup Pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. But the cup which the Father had given him, he drank to the bitter dregs. And when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, it was heard in that he feared, though he were a son. Yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Thus the Lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, and indeed slain from the foundation of the world, was selected, ready, willing, and waiting. It only remained that it should be actually offered up as the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world, as First John 2, 2 says. And it was to this suffering and slaying of the ultimate Passover lamb that Jesus took elements of the Passover supper and renewed their symbolism to point to his accomplished work, his suffering and his death, his body broken, his blood shed for his disciples that he might be reconciled, or that we might rather be reconciled to holy God. And so because... He has done that just as the Passover looked back to a particular event, but forward to a final redemption. We also see that the Lord's Supper looks back to the event of Christ liberating us, not from slavery in Egypt, but from sin and death, and looks forward to its full consummation in the world to come when we sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, let's pray. Lord God, indeed... May we remember, especially whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper, Christ our Passover, that that sacrament might be a time of remembrance of his accomplished work, even as it looks forward to the fullness and perfection of the results of that work. For we pray in the name of our Passover lamb, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.